Today's episode of the Triple Threat Podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee, a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students at Boston's Northeastern University. Today, the company is on a mission to get people energized with tasty caffeinated snacks. Every Eat Your Coffee bar is caffeinated with fair trade coffee, comparable to one cup, and is made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. And as always, energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Triple Threat Podcast being brought to you today and powered on the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner from the two-man power trip, the one and only JP John Paz. And on the Triple Threat Podcast, we are joined every single week by the man himself, the franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, how you doing tonight? Welcome to episode number 71. Isn't that amazing? It's it's freezing cold here in Pittsburgh, and uh, looking forward to hitting number seventy-one and giving the fans a chance, like we've done how many times in the past, to ask their questions. This is always fun. It's an all ask franchise anything episode where we kind of amassed a list of questions that we still had in the database, but then we reached out and we got a hold of the Triple Threat Podcast listener base. And they sent in some questions for you, Shane. I hope, uh, as always, you are ready for uh, a little bit of fan interaction here because there's some good ones that we're going to tackle here tonight. Look, there's always a – when you've been hit with chairs for 30 years, there's always a chance you might – some memory bank might slip or there might be a aberration in your memory. But I think to date I've proven pretty well that the franchise – Remains pretty sharp as he always been. <laughs> pretty sharp. Uh, the the wit is there. The uh, the 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 nice golden locks of the franchise are still there. I'm sure that'll pay into a question a little bit later on. So I wanted to throw that out there. But if you're all set, let, let... 
I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you looting? It's like you're trying to set up like some kind of a uh, a uh, feud or something. <laughs> oh, just you stay tuned. But if you're ready to get rolling into some questions, I know you had the weekend off, so you know we don't need to really go into it if you don't want to. But we can get rolling right into some questions now if you'd like. Let's do it. All right. Now this one was sent in via email, and it was sent in by one of our favorites. Lenny Backin, who's a loyal listener of the Triple Threat Podcast, as well as being a hell of a nice guy, had the chance to meet Lenny at WrestleCade last year. So hopefully uh, this year at WrestleCade, get to see him again. But here's a cool question, Shane. I don't know if this is one we could have expected. But he wants to know if you have any memories of tagging with Robbie Walker back in WCW in the early 90s, later to be known as Hardwalk Bobby Walker. And on a side note, but related, he'd be curious to hear your take on the lawsuit against WCW by a few wrestlers, including Bobby Walker, Hardbody Harrison, Sonny Ono, and others claiming racial discrimination? Uh, I remember, excuse me, I remember, I don't remember a specific tag team match with him, but Robbie Walker, he was the big kid with the big legs, right? Yes. The, nep- uh, the nephew of Thunderbolt I- Patterson. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, you know, him having, you know, an input. Uh, I don't remember a specific match, per se, with him. Um, but as per a the racial uh, lawsuit, you know, I, I obviously I wasn't a part of that, so I wouldn't have any kind of inside information to that uh, as to what was alleged or what was said. But I, I, suffice it to say, I'd seen several things in my career that would uh, would lead me to believe that there would be reason for certain lawsuits. Yeah, that that's an interesting is that, one. Is that, that nebulous enough for you? That, uh, that's quite nebulous, but that lawsuit, it's been talked about a lot. Uh, in recent years, because uh, a lot of Vince Russo talk involved with it, saying that Russo was one of the ones specifically not wanting to push the uh, the uh, the different uh, racial uh, parties that were a part of this lawsuit, which he's pulled out, you know, depositions and he's pulled out statements and stuff, and he's completely debunked that. So I think there's been more talk from that side, uh, people kind of wanting to point the finger at him. You know, for something that obviously was might have been a bigger uh, case, I think uh, some of these other guys maybe being more on the undercard. I don't know if that kind of played into it, but yeah, that lawsuit is a, that's kind of a weird one uh, in the grand scheme of uh, you know long term wrestling lawsuits. Well, <clears throat> again, when you have when you look at the litany of wrestling history, right? I mean, we've got a pretty long headway in that it's not like you know we can say well this guy was here for 30 seconds and that guy here was here for 45 seconds but when you look at the overall uh taking the wrestling industry and you see the way the wrestling business look the one thing about wrestling is it always pretty much bends and contorts to societal norms because it has to if if you're going to sit there and say, okay, well, here's a guy who's planning on being mummified when he dies uh, as the something that was popular 2,500 years ago, it might not draw a very large audience. Um, you know, so wrestling, professional wrestling had always been sort of contorted around 
what is going on in society at any particular time. So I think it's sort of disingenuous to sit there and say, well, now this happened in 1999, and what was going on at that time was this, and therefore, it's the old linear logic, ergo, uh, we know what somebody was thinking. Um, it just, you know, it, God, if only the world were that neat and and easy to disseminate. <laughs> I, I can tell you, I wish it were in my experience, and I've never seen it that way. Uh, you know, so to sit there and say that somebody, Vince Russo or anybody else, was trying to manipulate something based off of something that was going on in the news at the time, that that's, I think that's a bridge too far. Um you know, you can go back and you can see also at the same time when you go back and crack through the, you know, the the, the storylines of those days, you can see storylines that were 10 years, 15 years, 20 years past their prime. Uh, didn't make sense to us as we were performing them. But, you know, somebody in the office obviously had a affinity for whatever that particular storyline was. So I, I would think to sit there and try to assess to wrestling some greater uh, societal meme, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, this is what's going on is now and this, this wrestling storyline supports that or debunks it. I think that's being... In my experience with WWE and WCW, that's being a little bit too grandiose in your in your uh, your uh, uh, your affection for that particular company. It just didn't work that way, you know. It, it, when you're running a company as large as WWF or at that time WWE today, WCW, the idea that you can sit there and say we're going to ascribe tonight a storyline that was the front page news on USA Today. Go back and pick out a USA Today story from 20, 25 years ago and see if it has any kind of footing today. It doesn't. Very rarely does it. So I just think that's being uh, self-serving. You know, where you're sitting there and trying to say, well, on this particular date, 25, 23 years ago, 22 years ago, there was a storyline that said X, Y, and Z, and therefore, ergo, I've got a lawsuit. Or, you know, there's some greater thing at work. I just don't see it working that way. I think that's being overly uh, giving to the people that wrote the storylines, because in my experience, I really saw that kind of intellect and the people that were writing the storylines. Right. Hey, and also, if you picked up a USA Today from 20 years ago, odds are the front page is going to be a, a cigar and a black dress. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe you don't want to do that, but let's move on to another question here. This is another email that we had in the, uh, the vault from uh, Randy H. via email. Shane, if you could blueprint the perfect television wrestling show, what would it entail? Talking character development, storylines, managers, tag teams, ETC, and what would make it stand apart from the rest? 
God, what a great question. Uh, to me, what wrestling is lacking today, uh, it's wrestling. And I know that sounds like a trite answer, but when I turn on WWE, and, and trust me, I try to watch from time to time, and I just, I can't make it past the 15, 20 minute mark because I get to the same place that it makes me feel like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. It's the same thing I saw two weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, 20 weeks ago. I feel like I'm reliving the same thing over and over again when I turn on their show. Uh, but So what I would do in wrestling is, and I'm going to keep this as slenderized as I can, so as not to go, give my nemeses uh, and the jackasses in WWE any kind of foothold, um, but clearly you can see that there is a huge step away from what the wrestling business had always been best at doing. We've allowed the UFC and shoot fighting to come in and take away from wrestling what it was always the best in the world at doing. And when I say that, I point back to the picture I've alluded to before at Bruno San Martino's house. Bruno San Martino sitting in a uh, booth in a nightclub in New York City, the year I'm unsure of, but it included Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, and somebody else. There were four or five people in the picture. picture. And you could tell by that picture that everybody in that picture, all those monumental, world-renowned names I just mentioned, they're not sitting there thinking like, hey, we got this this fake pro wrestler, Bruno San Martino, with us. They're all sitting there jonesing and, and, and marking out that they're sitting with the world wrestling heavyweight champion. There was no ambiguity in the picture. So that's what we've allowed the UFC to take away from When I say we, not us, Vince McMahon has allowed the UFC to take away from professional wrestling. At the same time, he's trend, uh, he's moved the business uh, far closer towards the cartoon aspect as opposed to far closer to what his own top dog uh, Brock Lesnar is attuned to. So, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. Uh, for any fan that's watched wrestling as long as I've watched it, for any fan that's watched wrestling in the last 25 years, and certainly for anybody that's performed in this industry in the last 25 to 30 years, knows exactly what's missing from this industry. You have a lack of realistic characters. You have a complete repudiation of wrestling. And to the fans that would want to argue with me right now, I would ask them, when's the last time they saw a top wrist lock leg sweep takedown? When's the last time they saw any kind of chain wrestling? What used to make me mark out for Ric Flair was when he and Steamboat or whoever he was wrestling would go through this long chain series leading to a uh, London Bridges reversed into a backslide with a one, two, two and nine tenths and a kick out. You just don't see that anymore. What you do see ad nauseum 
every single match is, and I'm going to be hyperbolic. You see 96 backflips. You see a total sanitization of no wrestling, uh, completely sanitized out of the product. And you see 9,000 hittings of the ropes for no reason. It's just, let's just go hit the ropes because we think the fans think it's exciting. And not placing the blame at all at the kids' feet. This is clearly what their bosses are demanding they do. And it's what the fans are reacting to. I've been on a million shows in the last five, ten years where you sit and you see the guys in the ring performing and what are they performing to? They're performing to the fans. So when the fans get quiet, what do they do? We better speed up and hit 96 more backflips because they're not responding. Maybe you should try more in telling a story to draw them to the edge of their seat, as opposed to being the fireworks. ooh display. It's what's missing from our business today. And we can get the specifics of talking about the, the total uh, elimination of any kind of managers. When I was a kid coming up in wrestling and, you know, whether it was the Grand Wizard or uh, classy Freddie Blassie, Lou Albano, uh, or even Arnold, Arnold Skoland, you know, as a babyface manager, there was always somebody that brought you to the edge of your seat. They weren't just somebody standing out there at ringside to take up space and take up a paycheck. They were there to help push that product along. That's been sanitized out of the business. And so when you take away the wrestling and you take away the larger than life personalities, and then let's get specific to the wrestlers. You've, you've had what delineates wrestler A from wrestler B. Is it just a gimmick? Is it just, the WWE is telling you this guy's a good guy, this guy's a bad guy, this guy's a uh, an evil genius. This guy's if that's all it is. If they if the guys in the ring, and when I say that and again, I, I I always want to underscore this. What I'm saying when we talk about like the boys in the dressing room, we're we're talking about everybody, the men and the women in the dressing room, which is the euphemism we use in the business. But if it just becomes this particular wrestler in the ring is an evil genius or this particular wrestler in the ring is a slouch or this particular wrestler is an A, B, or C. If that's all it becomes, then, then that becomes like dust in the wind. You know, it's, if you can't perform that character in a realistic way that draws the fans watching to the edge of their seat, then it's just the, the latest gimmick that WWE... How, let me ask you this. I'll ask a rhetorical question. How many times have you seen a, a woman's wrestler in the last six months, year, 18 months, five years? When they get hit with something, they scream. Or when they get ready to hit something, they scream. Ah! I'm going to hit you with a move. Ah! I get hit with a move. Ah, it's the same thing over and over again. There's there, like I've said before in this podcast, rhetorically, nobody wants to read chapter one or two or three of the book over and over and over again. 
you have to have something that compels that product forward, something that compels that character forward, and something that compels that storyline forward, as opposed to the same thing you just saw in the last match or the match before that or the match before that. What separates match number one from match number two from match number three as you build that card? And when you, when you apply what I've just pulled uh, to what you've seen in the last remaining standing company in, in America, it's pretty hard to delineate match one from match two from match three from match four. They all remain the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's a, uh, John Cena in the ring or Charlotte Flair in the ring or anybody else in between in the ring. They're all doing the same thing over and over again. It's reading chapter one over and over and over again. It doesn't draw, and I think that is what's implicit in watching the rapid decline of the WWE ratings. So this question, to follow it up, almost ties kind of exactly into that. It's from an individual named uh, Jal Beard Z, the typo pirate, which is Twitter handles at Danzig303. He says, do you think the current stagnation in WWE partly lies in so many of the wrestlers having the same trainers and not having little bits of experience from other federations uh, like they would have had years ago? Absolutely. It has to. I mean, it's implicit. What you've ever seen Shane Douglas perform in the ring is a culmination of what I learned from Dominic, from Bruno San Martino, from Ricky Steamboat, from Terry Funk later. You cannot just disassociate yourself from that and say, okay, well, I'm going to go a completely different route from what I've learned up to this point. You know, if you know anything about the body, you have things called uh, receptors in the muscles, uh, the proprioceptors, that allows you to, when you get ready to scratch your nose, you just reach up instinctively and scratch your nose. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to go, okay, uh, I'm going to carefully pick my finger up here and scratch my nose so I don't poke myself in the eye. Why? Because you've done it 10 million times before. The proprioceptors in your muscles allow you to do that without thinking. And those same proprioceptors are at work when you see a Shane Douglas or a Ric Flair or a Bruno San Martino at work in the ring. Why? Because they've done that same thing over 10 million times. It's just, it's when you go back and you watch Larry Zabisco in the buildup to the Bruno San Martino feud, and he looks and feels so much like Bruno in the ring. Why? because they were genuinely working out together and he was learning quite a bit from Bruno San Martino. And you can see that in his movements and actions, he wasn't just mimicking something. He was, uh, performing what he'd been taught and, and working out and learning from Bruno. So I can no more disassociate myself from Dominic Danucci or Bruno San Martino or Terry Funk or Ricky Steamboat. Those are things that I've learned. Uh, the same thing is applying now. You're seeing, uh, when you watch the shows that, that they're putting out, uh, and I, I forget the name of the show at the top of my head, uh, but I, I watched a segment where they told some young female wrestler on the WWE uh, in the training center to perform a hip toss. And when she performed it, uh, both the female and the male trainer 
screamed at her and told her she did it wrong. That wasn't the way she was taught. Do it the way you're taught. That's, that's what we expect from you. And she executed again. And when she executed the second time, I thought, boy, that looked exactly like the first time. And I reversed the, the, the video and watched it a second time. And it was exactly as she performed it the first time. Every same mistake she made the first time, she made the second time. And yet the trainers, both male and female trainers in the WWE on that particular show said, that's much better, exactly like we taught it. It was exactly the same thing she did in the first time that she did wrong. Uh, she, uh, she based off the wrong foot. She pushed off of the wrong leg. She didn't post off the hip on the hip toss. And yet when she got screamed at the first time and then got lauded the second time, it was performed exactly the same way. So yeah, to answer that question, you're seeing a clear uh, impact and a, a clear infection of these wrestlers not bringing with them something that they had learned before of it being sanitized away in the WWE program. I'll tell you, I got like a million follow-ups <laughs> that I want to ask you to that, but I want to stick to the format of asking the, the fan questions because there's, uh, there's so much I could go into with you, that last statement right there that you're able to rewind a tape that everybody can get and see what the mistakes are and that they're just telling you, basically just do it twice and uh, you know, you, you'll learn from doing it the second time that maybe you, you, you got the first thing that you messed up uh, correct, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to harp on it, but we could stay on follow-up questions all night, but I'm going to move on to the next question, Shane. <laughs> Uh, this one comes in from Ben Martin via Twitter at Ben Martin 88. Uh, this one I already know the answer to, but we'll let you kind of dig into it. It says uh, at three threat pod franchise SD hashtag ask franchise anything. Hey guys really like the show as well as the deep dives into ECW history and Shane's career. My question is what was his opinion of the XPW incident at ECW heat wave 2000 and had he started working there before or after it happened. So we know in 2000, I don't believe you were going to be involved with that, but did you know of the incident, and what was your uh, your take on the feuding promotions? I didn't know of it at the time. I learned of it later. Um, and in some respects, I gave XPW props because they were doing exactly what ECW would have done stepping into somebody else's territory. Um, you know, at, at that point, it was pretty clear that ECW was on some side, some kind of a downward trajectory. We had an exodus of talent from ECW. That was the first thing. Uh, secondly, we had an elevate, a sudden elevation of wrestlers to try to fill those positions that not that they would not become talent that could replace that, but when you take a uh, a Sandman, a Mikey Whipwreck, a uh, Shane Douglas out of the equation, you can't just suddenly plug somebody else in there that hasn't been built to that position. And so they walk into L.A. and there's this confrontation with the XPW guys 
it, it was much what ECW had done in earlier days, uh, staking their claim and, you know, making an, uh, an allegation that they were now the future of, of, of sports entertainment, wrestling, whatever you want to call it at that point. That's not to say that they fulfilled that. But at the time when uh, when ECW walked in there, I, the first thing that my thought was when I first heard of it was I was shocked that Paul Heyman would walk in there so blindly. Uh, you know, it was clear. I think the wrestling fans could see from a, a wide angle that ECW was losing steam and there were a million candidates for trying to take the place of what ECW was. Uh, so I'm not going to debate whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing to do, but you've got to give some certain amount of respect to a company that was largely unknown at that point, uh, staking their claim for what ECW once was. Shane, this is a great question. I know you're waiting for your Shawn Michaels question, and it's not your generic Shawn Michaels question, but this is a good one. Shane, why do you take so much pleasure in Shawn Michaels losing all of his hair and going bald? <laughs> for the same reason, I, I, I just chuckle at him losing his smile. Uh, here, this is a guy that has uh, far aggrandized his importance in the world. Uh we're sports entertainers. We're professional wrestlers. We entertain people, that's true. But in the overall scheme of the cosmos, uh, what we do, and I said this much earlier in my career, what we do on the impact of any man or woman waking up tomorrow morning and going to work ain't very important. And so when you see somebody taking themselves so seriously as to believing that somebody gives a shit that he lost his smile or his hair, <laughs> especially <laughs> now vain Shawn Michaels is, uh, to me, it's, it's comical to sit back and watch. Um, you know, I, I say that with every amount of respect for Shawn Michaels, the in-ring performer, but when you start getting to the point where you start talking about the types of things that he's talked about, in his career, whether as an angle or not, it, it's sort of hard to disassociate that when you know the person and you know, it's, we all go out and portray a character on camera, but when we step off camera and we do an interview and talk about losing our smile or, <laughs> you know, something else as if the average person is out there working a 40, 50, 60 hour week is a flying fuck about you losing your smile. Uh, it's, it's just, it's condescending. It's so apropos for anybody that knows Shawn Michaels to hear him say something like that. You know, that, that he believes that the world is so attuned to what Shawn Michaels is going through as opposed to the mother or father. And you realize that there are millions of people that are out there busting their hump to put food on the table, to pay the rent or the mortgage, uh, to put gas in the car for the family. And then you hear somebody like Shawn Michaels say, I lost my smile. Uh, 
you know, maybe for that upper one or two percent, they might give a shit. I'm guessing they probably don't either. But for an average family that's trying to do those things I just alluded to, uh, they could give a flying fuck less about any of that kind of shit. It's just such a self-aggrandized view of oneself. And, you know, in, in our business, I mean, let's face it, we all portray a character that isn't real life, uh, that we're trying to portray something. And, and my uh, approach to the franchise character was for the time that those fans were watching that particular program, I never tried to make anybody believe uh, what, once that show ended that Shane Douglas was that person. Uh, in fact, my, my agent and I always get a kick out of when somebody new calls to book and they'll say, well, can we trust the franchise? Uh, do we, Shane's not going to try to to do it. Can, can he go out and do a promo without cussing? Yeah. I, and I can count without using my fingers and toes too. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it just gets to the point of absurdity when you start to look at the, the kind of thing, like, you know, we're alluding to in this question, you know, about somebody losing their smile after he's pretty much butt fucked his partner of 15 years that helped him get to where he got. Uh, you know, you, you can't, when you're on the side of the mirror that I'm on, you can't just separate those things. It's all part and parcel of the person. And, uh, you know, again, you know, no, I, I challenge anybody to say, well, Shane Douglas used to say Sean this or Sean that. I've always put Sean over as an incredible in-ring performer. Uh, but to make those kind of statements and then to, to see him lose his hair, to, 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 run, to fashion back to the question, to me is so apropos and so poetically eloquent, you know, that this moron now has lost his hair on top of it. <laughs> you know, there are some, somebody, and this is what a fan said to me this past week. There are some guys that once, like like Steve Austin, and this is what the fans said to me, uh, that once they lost their hair, they looked much better. You know, they, they looked, you know, cool without having hair. And then you see something like Sean that looks like a cancer patient uh, that, you know, has just, you know, has somewhere along the line lost it. That's why I've made the comment about you know, on top of that, he's lost his smile and his hair. Uh, you know, it, it just, some guys look good with losing the hair and some guys don't. And, you know, I, for one, am pretty proud of the fact that I got a full cloth on top of my head. Uh, no, 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 uh, cue ball or bowling ball coming from the franchise anytime soon. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I get a good chuckle out of that. <laughs> Now, Shane, this one comes in from Dave Levenstein, a.k.a. at the Nature Boy one Shane, do you have some great stories about Mike Awesome, and how often have you worked him? I never worked a match with Mike Awesome, but I, I can tell you Mike was a tremendous guy. Uh, he, the, the, the best story I have about Mike, to tell you what kind of a guy Mike was, 
aside from being a big athletic bastard, I mean, he was a big guy that could do pretty much anything was, uh, the story I've probably told here before on the podcast about the battle Royal in the ECW arena that ended up with me and Tommy dreamer and the, the fans closed in on the ring. And, uh, you know, it sounds crazy to a fan, but there are times you get discombobulated in the ring. And when you're, you think the exit is to your left, and when you, you get your bearings, you don't know where if it's left, right, forward, or backward. And that's what happened in that battle royal in that particular night in the ECW arena. I got up, and unbeknownst to me, the cameras had shut down because it was the last match of the night. So nobody in the back was aware of what was happening in the ring. They just figured the match was done and Tommy and I were coming back from the ring. And uh, by the time I got my bearings, the, the crowd had closed in on the ring and there was no open entrance way. So it didn't matter if you looked left, right, forward, or backward, every corner looked the same. And uh, earlier that night, was when Sabu and Terry Funk were wrestling, and there was a particular cue for me to interact. So Sherry Martell and I went running down to ringside at the proper cue, and I see Sabu's feet leave the mat, which was to be a plancha onto me. And as I see his feet leave the mat, the next thing I realize, I'm laying half under the ring and Sherry's covering me, trying to protect me, and she's screaming, this motherfucker's got a board. Well, later in the night, we have the Battle Royal, and I had rewound the tape earlier and saw who, what exactly happened during that Funk Sabu segment, and it was a fan that had red hair that came up behind me with a two-by-four and swung it like a baseball bat hit me in the back of the head. During the segment at the end of the Battle Royal, uh, you know, the crowd closes in on the ring, and I don't know which way to get out, and I see somebody with red hair jump up on the apron. And I instantly realize this is the same guy that hit me the board earlier. So my initial impetus was to keep him on the apron, thinking that any second now security's going to get here, and, you know, shut this guy down. And they didn't because the cameras have been shut off. Well, long story short, the guy comes to the ring ropes and thinks, in hindsight, I think, thought that he's being part of the show. And I'm doing everything I can to keep him at bay because I, if he comes on attack mode, my thinking was, every fan's going to come behind him. And uh, as I'm trying to talk him down, he comes closer and closer. And you could tell by the look on his face, he didn't want to be there. He'd rather been anywhere else on planet Earth, but was too stupid to back down. And he went to, with his hands to make a gesture. And I grabbed him and cross-faced him and dropped him on his face and hooked him. And as I'm holding him down, I'm telling him, you know, calm the fuck down or I'll take your eyeball out. And he, he tried hitting me in the balls. And when he did, I, I shoved my thumb in his eye 
And when I did that, I felt somebody come across my back. And I, I, I came up thinking it was a fan, another fan attacking. And here it was Mike Awesome. Mike had looked through the curtain and saw me <laughs> as a, an island un, <laughs> unto himself and decided he's going to fight his way through the audience to get in there to help me. Uh, that was Mike Awesome. In a, in, a, in a long-winded way, that was Mike, uh, a great guy. I was heartbroken when I heard what happened with Mike because he was such a good guy that had so much athleticism that he somehow got lost up in the wheels of the wrestling industry, which I think is a sad epitaph to my industry, to my business, is that somebody like that that has that much heart that has that much desire to succeed in the business can sort of get lost somewhere in the shuffle. Uh, shame on my business, you know, shame on this industry for that because, uh, you know, Mike was a great guy. Hey, let's pause for one second to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher 70% organic and available in three delicious flavors including fudgy mocha latte salted caramel macchiato and peanut butter mocha my personal favorite now that is an energizing combination because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real ethically sourced ingredients so if you want more information head on over to www.eatyour.coffee as well as follow them on Instagram follow them on Facebook follow them on Pinterest and follow them on Twitter and get all the the information on how you can energize the moment with eat your coffee bars definitely should still be with us and still should be doing his thing but this next question i'm actually going to cut it off uh, about halfway through because it is a little bit of a longer question in, in theory i could actually i'll email it to you shane the whole thing but basically here it is in a nutshell it says can you talk about extreme reunion extreme rising the experience a little bit you don't have to get into the quote-unquote dirty details if you don't want to but more so what did you learn from this experience as whether it was a performer a promoter or revisiting nostalgia in order to get something new over with the public the franchise from ecw is definitely an influence on me recently i've been making a few waves as mike messier the angry wrestling fan an embittered wrestling fan who is mad about wb hypocrisy the young bucks and their 30 super kicks a match and Joey Ryan with his dick spots. Thanks, Mike. Uh, but, uh, you know, thanks for the question. I mean, it's, uh, to me, what my biggest things learned uh, with hardcore homecoming extreme rising were just how fervent I expected the wrestling fans to be the ECW fans to be. Uh, there was, no intent in either Hardcore Homecoming or Extreme Rising to relaunch ECW or uh, to try to yank it back from the jaws of death. It was merely an attempt to give the fans some kind of closure to it and some kind of uh, homage to that. 
for me, you know, you hear the old saying, you know, sometimes, you know, too close to see the forest for the trees. You know, for me as a guy that was there from the beginning of ECW, I could see in the fans, regardless of what show I went to or talked to at the grocery store at the Walmart, that the fans had a special kind of connection to ECW. And so both of those were meant to give those fans, the ones that had, like me, tuned out of WWE, like how many other millions of fans, had tuned away from, not because it was a fuck you, Vince, or whatever. In my case, I can only speak for myself. I stopped watching WWE because it just did not satisfy what I was looking for in entertainment. It had nothing to do with me being a wrestler for all those years before. I, I can tell you if I was a 10, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid today, I would not be watching WWE right now. That's not a reflection on any talent that's there. It's a reflection on the product. So for me, both Hardcore Homecoming and Extreme Rising, when I was involved with that, was meant to give those fans that were so vociferously tied to ECW, the ones that attended Swan the corner of Swanson and Rittner every three, three and a half weeks, that gave ECW its footing, its foundation. It, both of those shows were meant to give those fans some respect back, some attempt to say thank you for what you did for ECW, because quite frankly, without a multi-million dollar company or corporation, whether it was Time Warner or Titan Sports or something else, ECW didn't have that. What we had was a direct connection with the fans. It was the same thing like when you see the President Trump today with his Twitter, completely bypassing CNN and all the rest of the, the, the news outlets. ECW had that same kind of transcendatory connection to its fans. We didn't need to go through some network or some sanitizing lens to get ECW to the fans. If I had a dollar for every fan that told me some conglomeration uh, of the following story, uh, I used to sneak down in the middle of the night and turn the TV on when my parents warned me not to, or I used to sneak behind my parents' back to catch ECW. I can retire today because that, that's a story you hear ad nauseum from every fan. It, but what compelled those kids to sneak behind their parents' backs? It wasn't that they hated their parents' guts or they were trying to fuck their parents or screw their parents over. There was some connection to that wrestling product that they were getting in ECW they wouldn't get anywhere else. They certainly weren't getting from WWF at the time or WCW, or they wouldn't have given a shit about trying to sneak down at 2 or 3 a.m. to catch ECW on MSG Network or, or Sunshine Network. It was something that ECW and Paul Hamer were doing in that product and all those characters that were involved in that incredibly talented dressing room that we tried to pay back 
and hardcore homecoming. Hardcore homecoming was meant to be a reunion, uh, you know, one and done reunion that was meant to give the fans some closure. And some years after that, when it was obvious that WWE at that time and TNA and Ring of Honor had largely overlooked it and decided to all start, start tracking down the same sports, ave- sports entertainment avenue away from everything that ECW stood for. And yet ECW was the only company in the last 25 years that provided something new, something original, and something compelling. Extreme Rising and Hardcore Homecoming both were meant to be homage to that to give the fans some kind of closure to what it was they were seeing in in the other companies that were, whether it was on Sinclair or USA Network or someplace else. It was to give them some kind of uh, closure and uh, satisfaction to what it was they saw with ECW. This was to be the payoff to what they to the uh, to the emotional skin that they had put in the game with ECW. Shane, what is your favorite Kiss song, and why is it "I Love It Loud"? Wow. Well, I, I do love, I love it loud. Uh, I, part of the reason I love that song, I don't think it's my favorite Kiss song, but uh, the reason I love it loud, I, I love, I love it loud is because in 1982, when that album came out, Creatures of the Night, Kiss had largely been written off, you know, especially after it's, it's funny to say today, because in hindsight, you know, again, I got, I've said a million times, in hindsight, everything's 2020. But in 1978, 79, I think it was, when Dynasty came out and, and Kiss, you know, the leather clad, you know, fire breathing, blood spitting group comes out with I Was Made for Loving You, a disco song. You've got to put yourself back in 1979 when disco was skewed by hard rock fans. And, you know, they, they, Kiss had largely been written off. And then they come out with this album, Creatures of the Night, that was so heavy and so pounding. And his drums with Eric, you know, with Eric Carr and you know Peter Chris is now gone. That that album, I don't think got the kind of respect it should have for Kiss because you know suddenly the, the original group is no longer together. Uh, but for me, if, if I've got a you know, there are so many Kiss songs that I'm a real mark for. And the older I'm getting, as much as I disliked the first three albums because of their production values. You know, when you put Kiss Kiss, Hotter Than Hell, or Dressed to Kill on uh, the old vinyl turntable, there was a thinness to the, to the sound that just didn't convey Kiss. You know, it was, you know, Kiss was at one in, in the 1970s growing up, they were uh, measured as being the loudest rock group in history at that point. You know, things like that. And then you turn those, put those first three albums on, and there was a, a thinness, and I've seen it described as a tinniness to the music. 
that sort of turns you off. But now, all these years later, when I go back and I listen to those albums, and you hear something really special in those first three albums, something really talented that was attempting to break out, to stake their claim. And, you know, when I listen to those albums now, I don't hear the lesser production values. What I hear is the special, unique quality of the writing that Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons and even Peter Chris and, and Ace Freddie brought to the table. You know, when you go back, you look at Ace Freddie and, you, and you're like paranoid and you listen to that song today. It's back when I was a kid in the 1970s, listening to that, I was like, ah, this sounds so, so junior varsity. But you go back and listen to it now, even with those production values that I think Kramer and company really, really missed out on. Uh, you listen to it now and you hear like some fucking incredible writing that just transcends the production values. Something I didn't catch at the time, but looking back and listening now, I can play those albums over and over again and really get into them. Uh, albeit I, my ear still hears the lack in the production values, but I, but I also hear wrapped in that, the history that kiss became, uh, you know, I, I think when I, it, it would be like sort of selling out of say destroyer because Destroyer was such a big album for them. But the first album that I remember really catching me, uh, you know, I used to listen my best friend that lived across the yard from me, Joey Crutt, is the one whose older brothers, Bobby and, and Don, used to listen to Kiss. That's how we started listening to Kiss. And uh, But the first album that I bought uh, after I got into Kiss was uh, the Love Gun album. And hearing the, the first couple licks of uh, I Stole Your Love on side one of love gun there's just something that sticks in my brain to that that is such a such a cool album and such an incredible lead-in with uh with i Story your love as much as as uh uh you know uh destroyer had with with that whole album when i when i Story your love came out with love gun it just took it to a different level for me. The thing that stands out to me today about Kiss is how back then they were derided by the Rolling Stones and, you know, the, the, the pundits of the day. And yet here we are 45 years later and Kiss had just announced their final tour. Uh, my mother said to me, gave me a bet. Uh, God, I, I'm trying to think of the year. I was young. And my mother bet me $5 that they wouldn't be around in five years. Well, here we are 40 years later plus, and they're still around and going on their final tour. You know, they've withstood the test of time, and it's not happenstance that they stand behind the Beatles as, you know, one of the all-time high-selling groups of all time. So, you know, it's... uh you know, for me, Kiss was has been a lifetime that's sort of, you know, followed me through my life and, and I've been able to follow along with. So I'm a huge Kiss mark. 
Shane, what do you think is better, Wawa or Sheets? Sheets. Uh, And I I say that because Wawa saved my ass more than once. Uh, (laughs) Wawa, when when Wawa opened, you know, in the early days of ECW, when we were staying the days in the, the Philadelphia airport, there were so many nights we got back to the hotel that there was no place around to eat. I mean, there was nothing. You couldn't even order pizza. So you'd, you'd you know, you'd end up eating the, you know, the potato chips and pretzels out of the machine. So when Wawa opened by the Philadelphia airport, it was like an oasis in the middle of a desert. You know, my God, you can get a sandwich or a bowl of soup or something else to eat in the middle of the night. Uh, so Wawa really stands resolute in my head as being a lifesaver. But growing up in Pittsburgh and in Pennsylvania, Sheets, you know, sort of uh, just on this side of the state, you know, that you can go to Sheets in the middle of the night and pretty much order whatever it is you want. And now, and now, stop and buy alcohol at in the middle of the night? How can the hell can you go wrong? That is a great point. Now, Chicago Bill W., which is on Twitter at Chicago Bill W. One, if ECW stayed as a regional federation, say just running show Philly, New York City, possibly Boston, didn't try to go national, do you think it would still be in business today? No. Uh, in any business, growth is the name of the game. You know, so... The, the thing that always amazed me about ECW in hindsight, looking back, was that we had such a compelling connection to our audience. Uh, but, you know, the old saying goes, you have to, ha- you have, to have money to make money. Um, what made ECW so compelling to the fans at that time was that we were the underdog. And... As the underdog, you know, when you, you there was rarely a letdown in ECW. There, you never like I've, I've mentioned how many times before. You never saw somebody being lazy in ECW. The reason for that wasn't that we were such better human beings or better athletes than everybody else. It was out of the uh, by sheer necessity. We could not afford to let the fans down, lest we be out of business in three weeks if that next ECW arena show didn't sell out. But, you know, it's like one of those balancing acts, like what creates it? You see a company like WWE with all the resources, with all the money behind it, with everything that a promotion could possibly expect. And yet they so consistently miss the ball. If this were a baseball game, they'd be batting about 90.091. Uh they're doing a horrific job of creating new talent, which is the reason they need to keep bringing back the undertakers and the Steve Austin's and the Mick Foley's and the Shawn Michaels and the whoever else fill in the blank ECW. If, if we hadn't had that place that we resided, we were sort of the forbidden fruit, but at some point, uh, whether it was, 95 or 2005 of ECW was still around. 
you've got to be able to pay the talent that you're, that that show is built on. So where I've seen wrestling, or I should say ECW fans in the past, eschew that a Shane Douglas or a Mikey Whipwreck or a Taz, a Sabu or a Sandman left, you have to ask yourself, why did we leave? You know, I, speaking for myself, and I, I would guess probably for the others, uh, I, I would have stayed with ECW for 50 years if, if my body could hold up to that. The reason I left ECW was when the checks kept bouncing and bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. And we've got a family to feed. And I've got a life to live. I can't just keep on going on uh, a promise from Paul Heyman or that things might get better at some point. You've got to look at it from a business standpoint. And when I left ECW, whether it was WWF in 95 or WCW later, both times I left that company, it was with a broken heart. I didn't want to either time. I would have stayed there forever. But you've got to be able to pay the talent. So in a long-winded way to answer his question, had ECW been able, at some point, ECW would have had to have found some kind of a corporate backer, some kind of a network outlet, something that would have put us a little bit closer to equal footing to WCW's finances or WWF's finances to be able to hold that team together. But the out, the last word in that phrase in that comment would be, had we been able to find that, had we been able to find a corporate backer or a network that would have supported us, I honestly believe that the outcome would have been much different. Than, than what we saw in the wars. Everybody gave it a WCW, WWF. It's one going to be one of those two. Had ECW had that kind of backing, I honestly believe in my bones that the outcome would have been much different in that Monday Night Wars and that there would have been a much different uh, destination than where we've seen WWE take the industry. Looking well, this is from Jeremy Neal at Jeremy N five four six eight seven seven five zero. I'm not sure what all those numbers are, but that is fine. <laughs> Looking back at it now, do you regret throwing down the NWA a world title belt like you did years ago? Not at all. Uh, you know, today I've got the luxury of the history behind it. So. At the time I did it, I, I was reticent. You know, do I do that? And that was the only reason there was any kind of hesitancy on my part of doing it. It wasn't, I, you know, I knew just from a general storyline standpoint, it's a brilliant idea. But, you know, in the midst of the NWA just having died, you know, fairly recently in, in, in general terms and, you know, relatively speaking, uh, the NWA had died relatively recent to doing that. And there were still so many in 1995 of those guys that held the belt 
you know, the Harley races and the Briscoes and, you know, all the guys that I mentioned, the Dusty Rhodes and the Terry and Dory Funks and uh, the Rick Flairs, all those guys that had held that belt, they were still active at the time that we did this, which I think made it all that much more uh, acerbic, you know, that, that we had done, you know, this, it's like the little uh, train that could, right, the little engine that could. Here's this little company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that doesn't have a national outlet, that doesn't have a corporate million or billion dollar backer behind it, and yet it was the one thing it was that the wrestling fans, it was the forbidden fruit to the wrestling fans. Well, you don't do it because you claim to be the forbidden fruit. You you achieve that by consistently giving the fans what it is they're looking for. Otherwise, those kids that I talked about that in the middle of the night that would sneak down behind their parents' backs to watch that show would not have done that. Uh, ECW was, you know, it's often been called lightning in a bottle. You know, we were doing something. A lot of it was by necessity. A lot of it was by luck. And a lot of it was through the sheer talent of that dressing room. It was an incredibly talented dressing room. I've mentioned before that if I had one dressing room, and keep in mind, I don't say this lightly because I've stood in some goddamn talented dressing rooms. Uh, but if I had to pick one dressing room that I wanted to go into battle with and a ratings battle with, it would have been that ECW dressing room. Uh, so, no, I don't regret throwing the belt down. In many ways, that action forged my future. Uh now, I say that today in 2018, but in 94 when we did it, and there was no guarantee of what was coming down the road, it was much more difficult to make that decision. And like I always tell the fans, 50% jokingly, thank God it worked. Because had it not, had it shit the bed, it would have certainly spelled the end of my career. And could have quite possibly put ECW in a really negative position. So no, I don't regret it. Uh, in hindsight, especially, uh, I think that that angle stands up with some of the all time great angles in professional wrestling. Thank God. I think it's like that Babe Ruth calling his shot. You know what I mean? It's got that kind of like mythical, uh, story behind it now, you know, whether you were going to do it or not. And, it's uh, no matter how many times we talk about it, there's always some new facet that definitely sparks the old interest. But before we wrap it up here, we're going to get one final question in on this all Ask Franchise Anything edition of the Triple Threat Podcast. So, Shane, uh, here we go. Last question here. It said, Missy Hyatt recently said she was slated to manage you in ECW rather than be paired with Sandman a pairing that she did not like, and that you two had great chemistry at the Crockett-Heyman-Manhattan Center WNN uh, TV taping pilot. Do you think that you and Missy as a pairing would have worked in a a longer-term pairing? And that is submitted from Chris with two S's via email. You know, that's, that's uh, A, I, I agree with Missy. I, I think there was chemistry there because there was so much history there. Uh, you know, Missy was there at the beginning when the Shane Douglas name was created, as I've often talked about on this show and, and other places. 
uh, there was also the connection with Eddie Gilbert, right? She was married to Eddie when Eddie brought me into UWF and gave me the Shane Douglas name and put that first belt on me in UWF. There was a lot more connection to that, but uh, I remember the taping uh, in the Manhattan Center, uh, but it was a one and done. It was a one and off. It's hard to say, you know, it's sort of like ECW, you know, so when you're talking about ECW and and you take a step back and you put it just as a, you know, if you put everything on postcards, uh, you know, a, a, a three by five postcard, here's WWF, here's WCW, here's Ring of Honors, TNA, here's ECW. Uh, you know, it, when you just put it on a, on a stationary level like that, it's really hard to say as to which one's the best, which one's the, the worst, and which one has a chance and which one doesn't. Uh you know, the one thing it's hard for me to, to, to disassociate from is that the one thing that I know for certain because of the history to it is what Francine and I achieved. There was, uh, that's no slam towards uh, uh, Tori Wilson or Lizzie Borden that would come later or even Sherry Martell that came before. Uh, but I know for certain because of the history of it, that Francine and the franchise character connected to the fans. Uh, so I don't know what Sherry, or I mean, what uh, Missy Hyatt and Shane Douglas would have achieved, but I will agree that at that initial taping, that Crockett taping at Manhattan center, that there was a definite chemistry, uh, but you know, looking back, it's one of those things where you're like saying that you're going to take a known quantity versus the X factor. I, I don't know. I, I can't speak to that other than I do know what Francine and I achieved. And I think that looking back at it, that's not something you can sneeze at, whether you're an ECW fan or comparing it to something with WWF, WCW, WWE, or NWA or UWF before it. Uh, Shane Douglas and the Fran—I mean Francine—and the franchise achieved something that I'm not so sure can just be bottled and transcended to, to somebody else or two other wrestlers or two other uh, uh, performers. There was something special in the chemistry that she and I had. Yeah, absolutely, and that was uh, that was a great question because those. Uh... That World Wrestling Network taping is uh, that is an interesting little side note in wrestling history. Had that gotten off the ground, and had the Crockett's gotten back into the wrestling business, and the star power that you guys had at that taping is uh, is unbelievable. If you really like, look at the actual talent roster that could have been involved with that project. Oh, I agree. I mean, I, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a. Uh, there was a sense in the building that night that there was something about to happen. Uh, you know, and I, I've never really dug into to the nuts and bolts of what did happen other than I know that it, 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 it never got off the ground. I remember there being a lot of uh, opposition by the, uh, uh, the athletic commission. Uh, there was a question as to whether they were going to let me perform that night or not. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So there was, 
that night in the building at the Manhattan Center, there was a. It wasn't like we just set out to have a show and had the show and executed. There was a lot of mountains that we had to sort of traverse in order to put that show on. It's crazy. If anybody wants to go look it up, there's a whole Wikipedia page that is uh, that that is dedicated to it, and there's a lot of pictures from the event. And I think that there's some like non commentary, you know, handheld footage that's out there. Cause we just talked about that with Pat Tanaka, uh, not too long ago, that same taping because uh, bad company had, mm. a, had a match on that too. So I'm telling you, it was stacked. Yeah. It was absolutely stacked. Could have been, it was against uh, public enemy, the uh, bad company, public enemy dream match. Yeah, there was, you know, but if, if nothing else, I think it portended for much bigger things to come around the next corner that there was uh there was so much inertia in that show uh and not necessarily giving it like like that like the, the energy goes to that show but when you go back and look at that and you see the level of talent that was involved in that show that uh, you know i personally would really be keen like i said i've, I've taken no time over my career to look into that and dig it i'm gonna look at the wikipedia page but to find out what exactly happened, because that night there was a ton of uh, enthusiasm in the building, that there was something else, that there was a launching pad for something else, and it was there, and then in a split second it was gone. Uh, so I, I would be very curious to hear the, uh, the entire story as to what happened with that. Yeah, that's uh, that's not a bad idea for a possible uh, down the road episode because that's uh, that's definitely something to explore. And it's funny because it kind of goes along the lines of there was another promotion that I had stumbled upon on a YouTube page. It's called Pro Wrestling Rarities, and they had a full show that was taped at the Westchester County Center like the week after you left ECW, and. You end up winning the, I believe you win the world title in the Battle Royal, but this is another promotion, had it gotten off the ground, that was stacked. It had you, it had Sid Vicious, it had Road Warrior Animal involved. I mean, it was like all these giant names. I actually think uh, Hawk was still alive at that point, too. Both the Road Warriors, it was another promotion that had it gotten off the ground. Who wouldn't know? But it was in the, uh, the Westchester County Center. Do you remember this one? I do, yes. I sure do. I remember the show well because I remember it. Uh, you know, the, the the show was earlier uh, because I remember being in the dressing room and it being daylight outside, and uh, I remember. Yeah, I remember. I remember the show well. I sure do. I remember being at the building and you know a lot of the politics and stuff that were going on in the back. There was clearly. Uh, uh, a lot of intersecting politics. Let's put it that way. There were a lot of intersecting politics in that show. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it looked like it. It looked like it could have been a shit show with a couple guys uh, <laughs> maybe not wanting to do uh, certain things. But yeah, you come out at the end in a mask and you uh, you win the Battle Royal. You win their world title and uh, you cut a pretty, uh, pretty hellacious franchise promo. Have you ever done that before? It must have been the first time. Yeah, I... Uh, you know, I'm one of those guys that's like very uh, shy on camera, and especially <laughs> when you put a microphone in my hand, I get really nervous. And so, uh, if, if I don't have a script in front of me of what to say, I'm not really good at what I'm going to say. <laughs> 
Yeah, you got a future in this business, kid. No, no matter what anybody tells you, you got a you, you got a future, no doubt. But that's gonna call it to the end here of this Ask Franchise Anything episode. This was a lot of fun, and please, we always ask you for questions, whether it's submitting it the uh, the long form way via email, which is the triple threat pod at gmail or if you want to hit us up on Twitter, you can hit the show directly at the three thread pod, or you can reach out to Shane at the franchise SD, or you can hit John or myself at two man power trip and at wrestling pal Shane. One of the questions was, are you ever going to return to, uh, to Twitter and answer your legions of fans? But, uh, there's so many, uh, there's so many ways we could say the franchise is a busy man. So, uh, yeah. maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I, I, on a daily basis, think to myself, I've got to get, you know, get online and, and, and get back to that. And I've been, as you guys know, like off, off, off the, you know, the, the beaten path of doing a talk show. Uh, there's been between my kids and, and life and everything else. It's, I've been very, very busy and tied up, but I really do enjoy being on Twitter and talking with the fans. And I promise to make every effort to get back on there and, and get back integrated answering those questions because for me that it's a great resource in everything else that I'm doing just to get on there and listen and, and to hear the questions from the fans and interact with them. Uh, you know, so yeah, you know, I make the pledge that I'm going to do everything I can to get back to that. Cause I do miss it. I mean, it really is a great way to not just interact with the fans, but to, to get an understanding of where they're coming from. And that's where so much of, you know, all that I've, you guys know, you've heard my spiel a thousand times, uh, but in talking about everything other, uh, everything else that I'm working on outside of the ring, uh, that's where so much of that information comes from. And talking to those fans online and conveying that information, this isn't just, you know, when, you know, when fans hear that I'm involved in something or talking about doing something, it's not just, well, this is out of Shane Douglas's mind. I I wish I was that smart. It it comes from talking and interacting with the fans, whether it be at a show, uh, at the local Walmart, or on Twitter. So yeah, I've I've got to make a redouble my efforts to get back that because I really do miss talking to the fans on a daily basis. And tell you what, guaranteed tomorrow I'll be back online. Hours after this uh, episode seventy one posts, I will be on Twitter and doing the best I can to to get the fans' questions answered. I can't guarantee that I'll get to all of them, but I will do the level best I can to get back on there and and uh, put it this way. If, I, if I'm back on there tomorrow, you know that I will not have lost my smile between now and then. Or my hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There you go. And plus it helps the metrics as well when you, uh, you get on there. Yeah. On a posting day, that doesn't uh, that doesn't hurt at all either. Yeah, I guess. So, all right. Right here. <laughs> well, let's wrap it up here. If you need more information on us, please hit us at tmptofwrestling.com. Hit the Triple Threat Podcast page. You'll get all the direct links for the YouTube videos and the episode downloads. And of course, like we say, hit us up on Twitter whenever you'd like. Even use the hashtag Ask Franchise Anything. It's pretty cool when you can actually type in hashtag and then start to type the first couple letters in and it actually populates itself so that's how you know it's working and how people are starting to send questions directly to that hashtag 
that also makes a lot of it easier when you want to gather these together in a long form, <laughs> such such as this show. But I continue to do so and uh, appreciate everything. And I know I was supposed to uh, get the giveaway together uh, that we were supposed to announce this week, but it was just a crazy week last week. So uh, we will look forward to doing that this week where we will give away one of the figures, toy company figures that we've got sitting around the old uh, TMPT and Triple Threat warehouse behind me here. So we will uh, get to that this coming week. So thank you, everybody, again for listening. And Shane, uh, you got a busy weekend heading to the beautiful state of New Jersey, Friday night and Saturday night. Friday night you'll be with Modern Vintage Wrestling. Saturday night you'll be with the SWF. So what are you looking forward to in getting into the Dirty Jurors one more time? Well, this weekend, you know, having just been out in New Jersey, but, you know, I'm just looking down my calendar here, and this Saturday, uh, you know, for the fans that ask all those questions about uh, ECW, uh, the guy whose neck I broke in 1996, 97, uh, Gary Wolf, he and I will be stepping in the ring at SWF Wrestling on Saturday night uh, at the Berkeley Little League Field. Uh, and looking forward to that because, you know, the one thing that the fans that know me for a long time and and talking, but I've heard for the last 23, four, five years, uh, you know, all the things that supposedly happened in that match and Gary Wolf and I've never seen eye to eye on this. So this Saturday night, uh, in New Jersey, there are, at the uh, uh, at the Berkeley Little League Field, we're going to find out exactly what it is that his opposition to what happened and my version of what happened. Uh, but that'll be taking place this Saturday night, so it's going to be a big, big weekend for the franchise because I still plan on writing my history the way I see it being written. Now you can't go uh, can't go wrong with that at all. And Friday night, our, our buddies from Modern Vintage Wrestling, Charlie, Gimmick Tree, uh, putting on a great show. Shane, you'll be a part of the Road to the Bruiser Brody Cup. So uh, you have your hands full, it yeah. looks like, uh, with who is your opponent here? The Mecca Mercenary. So uh, strap in for a little mercenary action on Friday. Hey, look, for something like that, you know, I knew Frank. You know, so for going into something like this on Friday night, that's not something I'm going to take lightly and say, okay, well, let's just go ahead and go with the flow and be sports entertainment. That, that, it's why I love uh, independent wrestling today because it, it, it still gives you some beckoning back to everything that's been great about professional wrestling uh, up to the advent of sports entertainment. You know, So I'm looking forward to Friday night because of that. Awesome. Get your uh, tickets now. Be in attendance for all the great shows that Shane will be on this weekend. So, Shane, with all that being said, there's a big uh, holiday week next week. We will see how our schedules uh, plan out that way. A big travel week for you as well. You'll be heading down to WrestleCade, but we'll talk about that next. And uh, let's get it on the road to uh, another great episode of the Triple Threat. Partner, the floor is yours. Hey, big episode number 72 coming up. It's also the week of Turkey Day, so don't make sure you catch 71 this week and 72 next week because you never know. You might lose the turkey wing. You might lose the wishbone. You might lose the turkey bone. The one thing you'll be damn sure of is you won't lose your smile or your hair. 
check out 72 next week or get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.